Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome back to the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Ken Keefley, and today we're speaking with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor on the topic of her book, Cultural Engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues of which she is one of the co-editors. Dr. Pryor is research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Wake Forest. She is the author of Booked, Literature in the Soul of Me Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist, and On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Her writings have appeared in Christianity Today, The Atlantic Monthly, The Washington Post, First Things, Vox, Relevant, and Think Christian. She's also been published in The Gospel Coalition, Religious News Service, Books and Culture, and many other places. She's a founding member of the Pelican Project. She's a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, a senior fellow at the International Alliance for Christian Education, and she is also a fellow at our very own L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. She's also a member of the Faith Advisory Council of the Humane Society of the United States. She and her husband live on a 100-year-old homestead in central Virginia with sundry dogs, horses, and chickens, and lots of books. So, Cultural Engagement, a Crash Course in Contemporary Issues is a compilation of Christian thinkers addressing how we can apply biblical teachings to issues such as war, race, creation care, gender, and politics. Dr. Pryor, thank you for joining us in this discussion. Good to be with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your story, your journey of faith, how you come to know the Lord, then a little bit about perhaps your academic journey, and then how you became so involved in the public square? That's a lot. We'll just take mm -hmm. one part at a time. Let's start with your faith journey. Sure. Uh, when I was born as the youngest child, my parents were pretty committed Christians. I first attended a Methodist church with them as a little girl, and then uh, they started going to a Baptist church. So really, most of my memories of growing up in church and um, being baptized eventually are squarely within uh, Baptist tradition. Uh, in the Northeast, really, uh, and there weren't a lot of Southern Baptists then, but when I moved to the South uh, 21 years ago uh, to teach at Liberty University, then um, I immediately uh, looked for a Southern Baptist church, knowing at that point what the doctrine was and what their commitments were, and um, so I've really been Baptist of one kind or another for my pretty much my entire life. So growing up in the Northeast, and as you said, that's not exactly a stronghold of evangelicalism today. You were familiar even as a child growing up in an environment in which evangelical culture was in the minority then. Absolutely. I mean, growing up, I was the only 
person among my friends that I knew of um, that went to church, um, that went to youth group later. Um, so I was always the only only Christian in my in among my peers. And when I went to uh, college and then uh, state university, I mean, I was I have always been surrounded primarily by secularists, leftists, you know, unbelievers. And so that really has shaped and formed the way that I communicate the way that you know my, my posture toward the world my approach to apologetics and cultural engagement I know something we'll talk about more but it was very very formative of me to for me to live in an environment where very few people were were, were Christians so would you describe your formation as uh, an arc uh, in other words would you say that you approach things differently now are pretty much the same what were you like as someone who uh, as a young christian found herself in an environment in which she may have not found it may not have been the easiest thing in the world yeah, I, th I think probably the, the most lasting uh, and consistent way that has affected me is that um, I've never felt like someone who fits in. Um, and, you know, I pretty early on had to tr to give up trying to fit in. And so the way that shapes me now, I think, and affects me now is that uh, I, I think to a lot of my uh, Southern Baptist peers and in, in the larger Southern Baptist circles, I also don't fit the categories or fit the way that they think um, others Southern Baptists do. And so, yeah, so, so people don't always know how to take me, whether it's within, you know, the Christian community or the non-Christian community. And um, that can be, you know, a strength or a weakness. It can be good or bad, but um, it's just something that I've grown accustomed to. So it's not, it's just how I expect it to be generally. So where did you go to college uh, and where did you get your graduate studies? I uh, went to college in a, um, a, a small, very small liberal arts college in Buffalo, New York, Damon College. I chose a, a small private school um, on purpose. Um, I, I always loved a, a small school environment. And then I went uh, for my PhD at the nearby State University of New York at Buffalo. My understanding, and you can correct me, is that at one time you were very involved in Operation Rescue, is this correct? That is correct. Uh, can you tell me, you know, what years? I remember they were very, they were, they were very active back, it seems like in the 1980s, maybe the early 1980s. Is this the time you were involved with them? It was, it was a little bit later than that. Um, and this kind of ties to your earlier question about growing up among primarily non-believers. So I would say that, that growing up as a Christian, I lived a pretty compartmentalized life. Um, I had a, you know, a strong faith in Jesus. I knew he was my savior. I've never really doubted. And I went to church in Sunday school, yet I found myself thinking and behaving in worldly ways. And I don't even mean, you know, the worst ways, um, but even just in terms of thinking about social issues and politics, um, I never knew how to integrate my faith with the rest of, you know, the rest of life. And when I graduated from college um, and was about to go into grad school, uh, by then uh, I had gotten married and my husband and I were attending a small um, independent Bible church, which is very, was very Baptistic, but we were um, non-denominational. And uh, they had a, the local pregnancy center come in and do a presentation uh, about abortion and about um, the center and the ministry there. And 
it was just an it was just an instantaneous conversion for me to the pro-life position the presentation that they made the way they talked about abortion um something i had never really thought about before and if i did i just simply accepted sort of the prevailing culture of cultural view of it i had talked a couple of friends of mine out of abortion in uh in in college but more out of instinct than out of real it was just a natural instinct that I had and uh, without any real knowledge or even necessarily conviction. Um, but I became convicted at that, that night hearing that presentation. And that was in the late 80s and Operation Rescue was kind of in the air. And it was, I think, about a year later uh, when, when the, they were coming to our city and our pregnancy center was um, peripherally involved. And um, I that conviction just grew strong and my pastor got involved and and my husband and I prayed about it for a long time and and when at one point when there was a rescue at our at our city my husband and I participated and were arrested and uh, for the sake of our listeners uh, who probably uh, most of them uh, are young enough that they don't remember those days mm -hmm. For the sake of them, uh, of those listeners, could you tell them just a little bit about who was Operation Rescue? Uh, who was Randall Terry? What were the tactics and methods and, mm -hmm, and, and sure. what was it that, that would end up you getting arrested? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, this is ancient history, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, so Randall Terry was the sort of the, the, the leader of what we would probably identify as a primarily Protestant or evangelical anti-abortion or pro-life movement. I mean, the Catholics have been at it for a very, very long time. And uh, the, the rescue movement was one that was really uh, based on uh, the protests of the civil rights movement. It, it, was, it was a kind of nonviolent civil disobedience that was intended to interrupt um, abortion services, the abortion industry in a peaceful, nonviolent way, not only in hopes of preventing abortions, you know, in that time and place at the clinic as we sat peacefully in front of them uh, or inside on the floor, whatever the case may be, but also because it was nonviolent civil disobedience, we would be getting arrested and therefore clog up the court system with our cases as a way of raising political and social consciousness about the abortion issue. It was very controversial, as you can imagine. A bunch of Baptist and Catholic and evangelical and charismatic Christians sitting in front of an abortion, blocking the doors and being literally carried away by police officers and put in buses and taken to be processed. Um, that happened, you know, uh, well, I was arrested a couple of times that way, three times, I think, and also a couple of times when I was just simply um, sidewalk counseling, you know, not intending to be arrested, but just simply offering help to women going into the clinic. And we would sometimes be accused of trespassing because, you know, it, sometimes whether something is public or private property would, had to be decided by the courts. So I, I remember in those days watching Nightline and Ted Koppel, they, they never really presented uh, Operation Rescue in a, in a very positive light. So you were really swimming against uh, the, the current uh, by these types of activities and practices. 
Yes, and you can imagine how well that went over in my PhD program at the State University of New York. <laughs> so you were, you, were, you were a PhD student at this time. Yes. So if I heard you right, I think I added up at least five arrests. Is that, is that, is That's is correct. That correct, yes. Yeah, yes. you know, I've talked to people who have been arrested multiple times, typically not on a podcast. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this may be a first. And, and I guess I find it a little amusing now whenever I see on social media when someone paints you as some type of leftist and I'm thinking now, young man or young woman who is, who is writing that, how many times have you been arrested uh, for <laughs> protesting abortion? I think that I, I, would, I would really like uh, for people to know that about you, uh, just to, to, so that people would know that you are a person of conviction and a person of, of a very strong moral center that's, that's based on, on scripture. So how would you describe that journey? You, you haven't been arrested lately, so... <laughs> Would you say there is, would you say that you, what would you, what would you say have you, you learned from, mm -hmm. that's a very confrontational mm -hmm. uh, approach. And, and there are those times when confrontation is not only the best option, maybe the only option, but it's not the only option. So how do we choose between those types of options in the public square? That's a, that's a good question. And I, I, and, and I do, I do understand in some ways why people who don't know any of this history and don't know anything about me might just catch a snippet of me being kind and understanding and compassionate uh, toward people with whom I vehemently disagree and take that as some sort of lack of conviction or lack of, of belief. But the way that I am with people now with whom I uh, strongly disagree on on these major social and political issues was formed during those years and I really was it, it's it may be hard for people to put together but standing out there at least once a week for 10 years at the clinics talking to women and men going into the clinics talking to um, counter protesters those people then would tell you that I was the same then as I am now. I engaged in, in dialogue and conversation with so many different people. I'm actually still friends on Facebook for, with a, with a uh, counter protester who was one of the most vicious ones out there who actually assaulted um, one of the, the pro-life protesters at that time. And I have still maintained a friendship uh, with him um, or tried to. So there is a way that we can be convictional and confrontational and stand up for what's right and um, in ways that take great risks like being arrested. And for me, that has just made me even more understanding and compassionate toward those who I think are wrong. And, uh, and so there, is, there are many ways that we can engage the culture and engage those that we disagree with. And I think that this, these rescues were very, very important and crucial for raising awareness in our culture. We are seeing the abortion rate drastically dec decline over the years um, since they reached their peak in, in the mid 80s. And I'm, you know, that's for a number of reasons, I'm sure. But this movement, I think, was an important way for our country to just confront what abortion had become and has become in our culture. And 
you know, there are different times for different ways, different strategies, um, but the truth never changes. So speaking of cultural engagement in how the different ways it can and should be done today, one of the things we're going to talk about during this podcast is this book that you co-edited called Cultural Engagement, A Crash Course in Contemporary Issues. Speaking of crash course, since we're, we're still doing a little bit of biography, while you were editing this book, you were run over by a bus? Is this correct? <laughs> well, well, almost. I was hit by a bus. If I, I missed being run over, uh, I probably wouldn't be here if that were the case, but God preserved my life. Um, but yes, it's just over two years ago um, that I was in uh, Nashville on my way to a meeting at Lifeway of all places. <laughs> Uh, walking from my hotel, trying, attempting to walk from my hotel to the meeting uh, when I stepped into a crosswalk and didn't see um, the bus until it was hitting me. It reminds me of the saying, you know, no matter how much you believe in the sovereignty of God, look both ways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a very good thing to remember. <laughs> so you stepped into a crosswalk and were struck. Yeah, so I, we think what happened is that I got struck by the mirror on the, you know, the buses have the big side mirrors um, that it struck me on the head and I flew about 15 or 20 feet and landed in the intersection um, mm. and broke a lot of bones and had collapsed lungs and spent eight days at um, Vanderbilt and then um, another uh, three months at home um, recuperating until I could walk again. Well, we are both amazed and glad that you're still with us, and, and we are glad that you are now part of the Southeastern community. Glad to have you as part of, of our uh, institution. It's a remarkable story that you have, and yet uh, during the time of, of your recovery, you still managed to do the book and, and have it done. Let's talk a little bit about the book, its, uh, its purpose, and uh, the authors that you engaged and had them write their respective chapters. Your PhD is in English. Correct. And, and uh, I, I really do enjoy reading just about anything you've written. I, I, I always find it profitable. Describe yourself. Would you describe yourself as a public intellectual, a theologian, an ethicist? I mean, it's, you, you defy simple categorization. And I mean that as a compliment. Give it your best shot. Well, um, that's a hard question. I, I am first and foremost uh, an English professor. That's my field of expertise. But I've always, uh, even, even in studying English, the first things that I wrote and wanted to write were op-eds or editorials. When I was in graduate school, I wanted to be the next George Will. <laughs> um, that, yeah, I, always, <laughs> I always enjoyed reading. I read George just to see how he could turn a phrase. <laughs> um, so I, I've always, you know, wanted to combine um, the life of the mind, the life of the intellect with the, you know, engaging the culture. So, um, you know, I am not formally a theologian. I'm, I'm trained in, in English and literature, but I did become kind of a, a cultural critic, I guess, which is also a field of, of, of literature, of literary studies, and write in those ways. And, uh, you know, as a Christian and as a, as a very public Christian, of course, and someone who's so passionate about these um, social issues, um, I have developed sort of a, a, 
a niche in in ethics and and cultural engagement um, over the years, and so that's it. Just sort of developed, you know, naturally and vocationally and um, constitutionally uh, it, by my nature over the past couple of decades. Yeah, I think it's very organic. It's something uh, we can see. the The book is called Engaging Culture. Let's start first with the word culture, how we understand the word culture. I mean, it has a number of meanings, popular culture, uh, common culture, high culture. What definitions are you using in this book? How do you understand culture uh, in the title, engaging culture? Yeah, I mean, th that that could be a whole <laughs> course in itself, right? But um, so, I mean, my, for me, the, the shortest, most succinct thing I like to say about culture is that culture cultivates. So culture is the thing that fosters and develops, you know, who we are as individuals and a society and a community. And then, of course, if we think about the ways that the church is part of the culture, I mean, we can look throughout church history and see there are there are a number of ways that the church has envisioned itself or pictured itself in relationship to culture, whether over or against or um, part of. And uh, actually the phrase engaging culture is, you know, my, my co-editor Josh Shatrow and I are very good friends, but we, we kind of, and we talk about it in the book, but I actually do not like that phrase, engaging the culture, uh, mm -hmm. because culture, it, it's, it, it is really like culture, it, we cannot live apart from culture. We are born in culture, we are part of culture, and, and actually there are many cultures uh, in a society and also that we are part of. So just talk about engaging the culture is similar to saying engaging the air. I mean, we just, you know, there's no avoiding it. But I think we, you know, within evangelicalism, uh, a particularly 21st century conservative evangelicalism, we use that phrase because many of us have come out of an era or are, you know, or are descended uh, from people who try to separate from culture. That's, that's for us, many of us, that's our heritage. And so we live now in a time where more of us are trying to have a, a more constructive um, way of engaging the culture rather than um, being separatists. It, it's interesting that you, you bring up our separatist, separatist heritage. You, you know, you taught for many years at Liberty University. I'm old enough to remember when Jerry Falwell started The Moral Majority. And that was quite a shift in our culture. Our as in, you know, at that time I was very much involved in independent Baptist uh, fundamentalist uh, churches. In fact, I, even though I grew up Southern Baptist and uh, I was saved and baptized in a Southern Baptist church, I went to a, an independent Baptist school. And so we had, had very much a separatist mindset. And then to hear Jerry Falwell say, we're going to start an organization called Moral Majority. I remember uh, the impact uh, that uh, Falwell and others had uh, on, I think it'd be safe to say, had a, had a profound impact on the 1980 election. Mm -hmm. this, was a, this was a cultural shift for our community where we moved uh, from an isolationist uh, to a, participat a participatory uh, attitude, yet it was still one of a conflict model. Wouldn't you mm -hmm. say that there was still, there? it's this primary idea that we are culture warriors. Would that be a, a, an accurate description? I think that's very accurate. And that's actually the culture that I stepped into, you know, with Operation Rescue um, and, you know, 
and and was I was very much formed by the culture wars model and and I so I have this um, fondness for it in the sense because it is it made me who I am um, and yet as we are you know in in this this time and place I'm I'm seeing uh, the limits of it and the errors of its ways and um, and and hoping to be part of a sort of natural good correction of that extreme, but not one that goes to the opposite extreme, um, but one that can kind of learn from both of those things, what happens when we are too separated and what happens when we become too hostile to the culture. So I think that many Christians, many evangelicals will use the term engage rather than uh, you know, to try to distance themselves perhaps uh, from the cultural warrior motif to try to, to maybe, maybe cultural in dialogue. The idea of taking part in the public square, would you say that that's what, it, what the idea was there? Maybe Richard, uh, Richard John Newhouse and his thinking at that time, uh, that, that was the hope that somehow we can be part of the dialogue without always having our guns and knives out. Yeah, I think that's where the the phrase originally came from. I think that's what the what the book does. And then, of course, even in the book, we gesture toward um, kind of moving beyond that by including um, uh, some of the work of Andy Crouch and you know and others who talk about it's not just about engaging the culture, but the next step is to actually become culture makers. Um, to really, you know, that that's where we should be. Uh, the Christians should be the ones who are leading the way in making the culture, rather just than just simply reacting um, or debating or opposing. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, Andy. I was going to bring that up because he does challenge us in, in saying we should be, I think it's his book, Playing God. We should, we should embrace the fact that power is something inherent to all of us. Yes, as fallen creatures, power can certainly very quickly and easily be abused, but we need to embrace it and, and I think he would say redeem it. Uh, would you find yourself comfortable with, with Andy's with Andy's uh, uh, approach, I, I'm very comfortable with that. I think I think that's that's the, you know we we keep I, I think that we learn or can learn from history and um, there's sort of a, a a natural movement that takes place when we swing from one one extreme to another and then kind of arrive at a synthesis maybe um, for this time and place and I th I think that um, yeah I would align myself with that way of thinking. Well, speaking of synthesis, many of the sections and portions of the book will have chapters written by those who hold to differing views. I'm thinking now different views on the death penalty, differing views on immigration. What was your thinking there? What, what is it that you're hoping to accomplish by uh, having the compare and contrast in the book? Is it to show that there is room for disagreement or is this somehow modeling? What, what was your idea there? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so it's first important to remember that this book is really a textbook. Um, and so it, you know, a, a, every genre has its own sort of uh, expectations and purposes and this is meant to be a textbook of course someone can pick it up and read it on their own but it is primarily used in in the classroom and we wanted to of course cover you know we could never cover all of the the most pressing contemporary issues but we hit a range of them and what we didn't we what we wanted to do was to replicate what happens when our students go out into the world and start reading blogs or books or listening to YouTube videos 
because they just go out and they find random things that are maybe in conversation with one another or or are not and then they encounter those and are going to make judgments about those and so this book tries to gather together sort of representative views by those who profess to be Christians. Most of them are our friends and have, you know, agree with us on, on the major points, but some of them are those that we disagree with, but that we know our students are going out and reading and usually on their own coming to some conclusions that may or may not be biblical. So we have taken sort of select or representative points of views that are out there and asked you know, we guide the readers, this audience of students, to read them in conversation with each other, the essays with each other, but more importantly, in our discussion questions, to read those essays in conversation with the Bible. Um, and to, so what we're trying to do is to guide and cultivate um, the students thinking or any other the readers thinking about not just the issues, but even any particular point of view or perspective on an issue in, and to weigh that against the scriptures. We have just barely scratched the surface and, and I have a whole list of questions in my mind that could follow up on this. Maybe the next podcast we can talk about um, the public square and social media. What are, the, uh, what are the best practices and what pitfalls to avoid, things of that nature. We've been talking uh, to uh, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, one of our new uh, faculty uh, colleagues at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in the College at Southeastern. We've been talking about uh, a new book that she is co-editor, Cultural Engagement, A Crash Course in Contemporary Issues. My name's Ken Keithley, uh, wishing you a good day.